And we titled the theme of this book, For His Glory and For Our Benefit. And I love the two-way street that God has prepared for us. That's everything that he calls us to that glorifies his name is also for our benefit. And so we get to give God glory. He gets to benefit his people. And we're going to find that again in 1 John. We're going to be at 1 John chapter 2. And the verses we're going to be looking at today are 18 to 20. 1 John 2, 18 to 20. The title of our lesson today is going to be called The Antidote to the Antichrist. The Antidote to the Antichrist. Before we get there, though, did you ever have to become a citizen of somewhere else? Did you ever have to move out of the country or to a totally different part of the world and become a different part of the country, a different part of the world? Well, I had to join the North Country several months ago. Many of you know that story. And uh, it feels like a totally different environment up here. I had culture shock, they call it. Still, still reeling with that culture shock. And here's, I came up with a, a list of things that I had to sort of learn in order to become a citizen of the North Country. That's right. Things I, I didn't know about the North Country until I moved here. And now that I know that I have to become that in order to be part of this. So I'm going to give you a list of these things. Maybe these are things you've realized as well and maybe the things that you already do. Number one, in order to become a citizen of the North Country, I had to start to realize that boots go with everything. Because <laughs> back in Pennsylvania, you only wore boots when the snow came. But here, people wear boots with everything. Rain, snow, sunshine, shorts, pants, dresses. I'm noticing boots go with everything. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. So I need a lot more boots. I came up with too many sneakers. Here's another thing I learned about the North Country is that you'll say the word notch a thousand times more than you used to. That's not really a word I had in my vocabulary. And now I find myself saying the word notch over and over. Franconia, Crawford, Pinkham. Did I miss any? Any other notches out there? There's another notch? Oh, man, I don't even know all the notches. The word notch is very pre prevalent up here. Number three, to become a citizen of the North Country, you know you have to hate Massachusetts. <laughs> but you're not clear why. I found myself the other day driving behind someone with Massachusetts plates and I wanted to drive them right off the road. But I had no idea why. It's just been indoctrinated in me that we hate these people and I don't know why. And I felt weird as a Christian hating them, but go back to your own state, Massachusetts. I'm just teasing. It's easy jokes if you don't know them right now. Number four, to become a citizen of the North Country, you have to, when you ask where the moose are, that I have several times, this is the answer they give you. They're everywhere you're not. Okay. I'll just have to get used to that. They're everywhere that I'm not. Number five, to be a citizen of the North Country, you have to, you will start to envy all the calf muscles of the old people. And I've started to realize that, that I'm envious of all the calf muscles of people that are 20, 30, 40 years older than me. Everyone has these really strong, ripped calves. And I don't have anything like that. And I realized why. We, we went hiking yesterday, and my calves hurt. And I said, well, that's why. i got to do a lot more hiking. How about this one, number, phrase, number six? The phrase, live free or die, might be a passive-aggressive way of saying that we hate Vermont and Maine? Is that really what we're going for? At least it seems to be. Live free or die. We don't like you either, Vermont or Maine. How about number seven? You will mourn over the old man of the mountain like he helped raise you. I hear a lot of sentiments for the old man of the mountain. If you know, I had to go to Concord and pray over the old man of the mountain 20-year anniversary. That was a real big honor. But my mom and I tried to go find the old man of the mountain. 
It's not there. And it was a really bizarre afternoon when mom and I tried to find where it used to be. And I said to mom, I don't know what I'm looking for because there's nothing to see. And so I was looking at some odd rock formation going, maybe that was it. I don't know. But uh, we grieve the old man of the mountain. Number eight, you can get a tick bite just by picking up a package from your porch. Those ticks are everywhere, right? Everywhere. Although we, we avoided it a lot yesterday. Joel, you were right about the rain and knock those ticks right off. Number nine is you can get heat stroke in May and frostbite in June. <laughs> Didn't know that. Now I do. And number 10, to become a citizen of the North Country, when you tell someone to take a hike, they hug you and thank you for your friendship. <laughs> that used to be a derogatory thing. And now it's a great thing when you say take a hike. That's a kind thing. So sometimes you have to become a citizen of somewhere else. Well, we just sang about this, thankfully. If you're a Christian, where are you a citizen of, thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ? You're a citizen of heaven. We're going to talk a little bit about that today when we talk about the antidote to the Antichrist. Join me in 1 John chapter 2. What have I encouraged you to do through the book of 1 John? That's right. Read it once a week. Who has done that? Good job. Good job for those who are lagging behind. Let's get going. We've got plenty of 1 John to go. Read it once a week. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. It's going to be a blessing to your soul. You'll see many of the context, many of the theme. Let's read our passage together. 1 John 1, we're going to start, excuse me, 1 John 2, we're going to start in verses 18. The Word of God says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, we're calling this today the uh, antidote to the Antichrist, but this is going to be part one of at least a two-part sermon because the passage goes on for many more verses about the same topic. So I had to cut it off, and we'll go slowly through this passage, and we'll gain as much as we can from it. But I'd like to keep it in the context. If you remember last week, we talked about avoiding a tragic pitfall and the verses we looked at were verses 15 to 17. And I want to remind us of that because John is just picking up where he left off. And we need to understand that context in order to appreciate where he's taking us today. So let's read these verses as well. First John 2, 15 to 17. These are the verses right before ours. John said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's going to pick up where he left off, and here's our outline today that we want to get to. Number one is we're going to talk about our time is brief. Our time is brief, and it is. And John will remind us of that again. Number two, we're going to talk about Satan's preparation, because Satan is preparing for something. And we're going to talk about that as well, and it's right here in the text. And number three, of course, we're going to get to the antidote to the Antichrist. That's our three-point outline. We're going to start here. Our time is brief. Do you believe that? Doesn't time go quickly? Time goes very quickly. I'm now in my 40s. I just remember it was like yesterday. I was in college and doing that kind of stuff. Now I have eight kids. I'm here in the North Country. Time goes quickly. Time is brief. Time is not on our side. And John's going to bring this up. He says in verse 18, children, 
And this is a very affectionate thing. He keeps using this term because he loves these people. And I believe he does, and I love my church. And when you say something like that to a Christian audience, that's not derogatory. You're not telling them they're children, they act like children. It's a very affectionate thing that John is doing. He's telling them, I love you. And I tell that to my children on a regular basis. I love you, and I'm giving you instruction, and what I'm doing as your father is for your benefit. So what he's about to tell these people is for their benefit. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists has come, have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. What does John mean by that? He says it's the last hour. Now, if you know when this book was written, it's nearly 2,000 years ago. And John's telling his readers at that time, he's not projecting forward to our time, he's telling his readers at that time it's the last hour. Was John wrong? Was John like one of these people making these claims of, when the Lord was going to come back, if you guys remember this, a little over a decade ago, people had pinpointed the return of Christ. Do you remember that? They had it all over the news. It was all over the media. Christ is going to come back on May 21st, 2011. Well, it didn't happen. And because we don't know the date. And even though that website says we can know, the word of God says the opposite. We're not, know, we're not going to know specifically when Jesus is going to return to this earth. But he has told us it's going to be soon. But our concept of time is different than God's concept of time, is it not? So when John says it's the last hour, is he lying to us? Well, we have to remember what it says in the Word of God about this concept of time. It says in 2 Peter 3, he says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is, a th is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Isn't that remarkable? Some people estimate that the world is between five and 10,000 years old. It's possible in God's mind, in God's estimation, that is like a week to him. One week from the beginning of the world to our time right now, that in his God's eyes, like a week. If you do the math, you will come to the understand that your life that you spend upon this earth is really, really brief in God's estimation. So when John says it is the last hour, of course he's not lying to us. He's reminding us of a trap that the devil is trying to get us to fall into by telling us this over and over. You have plenty of time. You have plenty of time to get to the things you want to get to, the things that are important to you. Take your time. Pace yourself. We have an abundance of time. Why would the Satan, why would the devil want us to think that? Charles Spurgeon said this. He is the, the God of tomorrow. He's always trying to push our agenda off to the next day. You always have tomorrow. Why not do it tomorrow? Push it off. Push it off. Push it off. Because he knows probably more than we do, that our time is very, very brief. And so he has to distract us. He has to remind us that time is on our side, and he's lying. Time is not on our side. We are here a very, very short time. And sadly, if someone passes that you love, that's when you start to realize that, isn't it? That time is brief. Time is valuable. Every day is a gift. You'll hear things like that. And it's true because this time that we live is very, very brief. That's what helps us make sense of some of the warnings in Scripture that says such things like this. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. Now, he's not talking about physical sleep, of course. He's talking about spiritual sleep. He says this phrase, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
Of course, he's not talking about the moment that you trusted Christ. He's talking about the culmination of your salvation when you stand there at Judgment Day and God says to you, yes, you believed in my son. Yes, your sins are forgiven. He says that day, that moment is closer now than it's ever been before. And sure, that's obvious when you start to think about it, but it's a very profound thing to remember that we are near to Judgment Day to the end than anyone has ever been. We are right now. And John is reminding us today that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. We do not have long. We do not have time to, to waste. Another famous passage of Scripture in James chapter 4 says this about our lives. He says, Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, we live in the North Country. We have a lot of cold weather up here. Not right now. I mean, it's a little brisk. But when the cold weather returns, you can see your breath come out of your mouth. And that's, that's an illustration of what James is talking about. He's going, that right there is an illustration of your life. You breathe and you see it for a moment and then it vanishes. And John is telling us something very important. Time is brief. Now, why do we need to know that, John? Because what he's going to call us to today is of utmost importance. If we relax... If we get lazy in this process, then we're actually going to harm God's will in our souls. And John does not want us to do that. So he says this to us once again. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. He is coming. But so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. He says, the reason that you know, the way that you know that time is not on our side is because many Antichrists have come. Now, another thing we love about the North Country is we love when the leaves begin to change. I am a fall junkie. I love fall. I love autumn. I bother Janine all summer long by counting down to fall. She really hates that. As soon as May comes, I start counting down to fall, and she's like, summer's not even here yet. But as soon as I get close... As soon as I get in the August area, late August, I start to see those leaves change. I start to get really excited. I start to tell my family, it's almost time. It's almost fall. And I've never experienced fall in the North Country. Do you know that? I have not been here for fall yet. So I have hopefully a great treat coming. Now, I don't want to hear one of those things when fall comes when people say, this is not typical. Because <laughs> I've been hearing that every season since I've been here. Now, this is not typical. I don't want people to say that this fall when, the, when it's 100 degrees in October. But toward the end of fall, I start to get very excited because I start to see things that remind me of fall. The weather dips a little bit. The colors start to change. And I start to realize that summer's coming to an end and fall is almost here. And that excites me. Children also love a certain time of year, a little bit further than that, is when it starts to remind them of Christmas, right? Now, for those of us who are adults, we love Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving's a good holiday, but when you're a kid, if you remember, Thanksgiving's in the way. Okay, you got Halloween, you got kids love that, and you got Christmas. So as soon as Thanksgiving's out of the way, that's when you can start thinking about Christmas and things like Black Friday. <laughs> you guys remember that? For, for a while, they were putting Black Friday right on Thanksgiving. Do they still do that now? And people can leave their, their dinner table and go right out shopping and start shopping for Christmas. And that's how you know that Christmas is coming, because people start thinking about decorations and buying presents. We also have another one for those of us who are a little bit aging in life. Yeah, I can uh, fellowship with that phrase up there. It says, I remember being able to get up without making sound effects. Good times. 
Anyone else? Sound effects by waking up. Just by waking up, things are creaking and cracking and popping. What's going on there? And it's just reminding you that time is brief. Time is brief. Thank you. That's what John is doing. He's reminded. But he's also telling us not only is time brief, but here's the way that you know time is brief, is that many antichrists have already come. Now, that's a very bizarre thing to hear. If you've been in Christianity long enough, you've heard this person called the Antichrist. This person is going to come, and he's going to do great damage to this world, great damage to the name of Christ. But John is already telling us many Antichrists have already come. They've already been here. They're here now, in fact. Some, some of them might be amongst us today, and that's a really grim thought to know. But if you've been in Christianity long enough, that's the devil's game. He loves to plant forgeries and fakes and imposters amongst us. And I believe what John is doing more than anything is he's telling us this. Prepare your mind for action. The Antichrist is coming. The Antichrists have come, have already been here, are here today. And this should remind us that it's now time to prepare our mind for action because there is a battle raging on, whether we want to admit it or not. There is a spiritual battle raging on, a warfare going on between Christ and his army and the devil and his army. And this battle will be raging on until the end. And John does not want us to relax and lay down our weaponry. Now, this, of course, is not a physical battle. We do not fight with guns and swords and shields and things like that. We fight with spiritual weapons. But this battle is raging on. And he wants us to understand that this is not the time to relax. This is not the time to sleep. This is the time to wake up, to get your armor, to be ready for spiritual battle. And we know that, right? Look around our world. Look around our culture at this time. There is a spiritual battle raging on right in front of our eyes. I was sharing this with the men yesterday, how it seems that there's a, you guys heard the term blitz before? If you watched football long enough, you know what this term is. A blitz is when you basically send as many people as you can to go get the quarterback. And I had to put our beloved Tom Brady up there because um, that's kind of the illustration for what's going on. Is the devil, I believe, in this time and this season is blitzing us. He's blitzing the church. He's sending as many enemies in many different directions of evil at us as he possibly can. And a blitz is defined as a sudden, energetic, and concerted effort, typically on a specific task. I believe the devil knows this time is brief. He does not have long. We do not have long. So he's gearing up his efforts to come against the church. And some of those are these terms, antichrists, that the devil is sending to hurt us. And John is telling us today, get your spiritual armor. Put it on every day. If you've read Ephesians chapter 6, this is what Paul reminds us to have on every single day. He says you need your helmet to protect your head. It's a helmet of salvation. You need your breastplate of righteousness to protect your heart. The devil would love to attack your mind and your heart. You need the belt of truth so everything holds together because without truth, none of it holds together. You need the feet of peace because you need to go forward in this battle. You don't need to linger. You don't need to go backward. You need to go forward. You need the shield of faith to withstand all the fiery darts of the devil but you also need the sword of the Spirit. Because we're not here just to defend, are we? We're not here just to not sin. That's not why God put us on this earth, just to avoid sin. He put us here to advance his name, advance the kingdom of God, advance love, advance holiness. He put us here for offense. 
And the devil knows that, and he's trying to neutralize us and thwart that offense. And he's trying to get us to turn around and run. But you notice any part of the Ephesians 6 armor that Paul gives us, none of it's for our back, is it? We're not supposed to turn around. We're not supposed to turn around and hightail it and run away. We are supposed to advance in this warfare. And John's reminding us that we don't have long. So he says, it is the last hour. It is time for us to wake up from our sleep. Now, I'm not going to assume anyone here is asleep, but I believe it's at least possible because I was for a big chunk of my life, calling myself a Christian and doing hardly anything for the Lord for possibly 20 years. 20 years of my life wasted and squandered because I was asleep spiritually. The alarm kept going off and I kept hitting the snooze over and over and over, going back to sleep. And that's when the Lord said, Todd, it's time to wake up. It's the last hour, Todd. It's time for battle. It's time to advance my name and advance my kingdom. Our time is brief, but number two, we're going to talk about Satan's preparation because Satan is preparing for this battle every day. Every single day he's preparing for this battle against Christ and his church. And again, John says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist, he's coming. We'll talk about that. But again, so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Who is this person, the Antichrist? And it is a person. Of course, we know the devil and Satan is a spirit, right? He's not a person. He's spiritually amongst us, and so are his minions. Spiritually, they're, they're invisible. We cannot see them with our eyes. And what's worse than an enemy you can't see? And the devil is a spirit, and he's lurking around this world. He's called the God of this world, and he's doing as much harm as he can in the spiritual realm. But he's also going to have this person with boots on the ground called the Antichrist. And he's exactly what he sounds like. He's against Christ, but he's a person. He's a person that the devil right now is grooming and preparing to send at the proper time right here in our world, in our, in our time, to do whatever he can to hurt and harm the church and the name of Christ. And we live in this culture now where everything is anti, don't we? It seems like everything we, we hear today is about canceling something and anti-something. And we believe, we see it all around us, that there's a great threat to our rights happening now. Right? In fact, I shouldn't even put anti there because the, the, the circle symbolizes the anti. But our rights are being attacked, right? Every single day you hear it, they're taking rights away, more rights away from us as American citizens. And we think, boy, that's such an attack of the devil. But I want you to understand something today. The devil has much bigger things to concern himself with in our rights. He's a big game hunter. The devil is a big game hunter. He doesn't care as much about our rights. You know what he cares about? Our soul. That's right. He's got bigger things that he's, he's after than our rights. The fact that we can't speak as easily or we can't carry weapons and things like that, that's not his greatest concern. His greatest concern is that we don't follow Jesus Christ. Because that's what actually can hurt his kingdom. And so he's got to nullify and neutralize the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds. He's got to go anti-Christ. And so he's going to send a person, and it is a person, and we don't know who this person is, and this person has not arrived yet because we'll know when this person comes. But I want to give you a little bit of description of this person. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we find a description of the Antichrist. And I just want to read this, and I want to make a couple notations. This is Paul speaking to the church of Thessalonica. 
And he says this, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the end will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, who is the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction. Do you notice that? He's not after our rights. What's he after? He's after our destruction. He's after our complete eternal ruin. He's not satisfied with anything less than that. He doesn't want us slowed. He doesn't want us lessened. He wants us dead. And that's his goal. That's a very lofty goal, but he's a big game hunter. So he's going to send this man, the man of lawlessness, and he's the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Because he wants you to follow him instead. Because when you follow him and not the true Christ, you go the wrong way. He says, do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Do you believe that? Do you see it in our culture? Right? It's pretty easy. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What is the world doing? What is our government doing? What is this whole nation doing? They're removing the laws, the constraints, the boundaries, the guardrails that once held us, the morals that once guided us, they're removing them, paving the way for the Antichrist. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. But notice verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now that's very dark, very ominous to talk about in a church service. But Paul does not want us to linger on that fact too long because he says this, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Do you notice that? The Antichrist is coming, but guess who else is coming? Jesus, the king, the king of all kings. And the Antichrist can do nothing against the king of kings. He can do something against us. We're frail, we're fragile people. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the battle will turn and it will turn dramatically and it will turn permanently for the rest of eternity and he wants us to know that that the antichrist is coming he's preparing to come but make no mistake about it there is no victory no grand victory for the antichrist he says in verse 9 the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of who of satan of course he's his chosen man with all power and false signs and wonders because it has to look good it has to look spiritual it has to look powerful it can't be blatant sin. That's too obvious. I mean, if you go fishing and you put just a hook in the water, is that good enough for the fish? Just a big old hook. Just go fishing next time and just, just put a hook in the water. Is that good enough? No. Fish aren't brilliant animals, but they're brighter than that. If there's no worm hanging off that hook or a lure to attract their eye, they're not going to bite into a hook. So the devil has to use power and signs and wonders, but they're all false. And with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. He's going to get some. He's going to catch some. But gratefully, it's, it's those who don't love the truth because those who do love the truth will know better. Those who do love the truth will see him, will notice him, and will stay their course. It says, therefore, God sends them, those who don't love the truth, and sadly, they're all around us as well, he sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false. Because that's what they want. They don't want truth. They want what is false. So the Lord's going to take them even further into the darkness. Let them go even further than they currently are because that's their heart. In order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that is really a hard passage. And someday we will teach that whole thing. But that gives us a little taste of what's going on and this is a prophecy of the Antichrist coming. And really what's happening is the devil is rolling out the red carpet for him right now. Rolling out the red carpet for the Antichrist to come by sending these smaller Antichrists. These smaller Antichrists, there's many, there's several, there's dozens. They're now rolling out the red carpet for the main Antichrist to come. And they might even be amongst us in this church right now. Because the devil, wherever there's good, he's going to send a spy. He's going to send a minion. He's going to send one of his disciples. Mother-in-law. <laughs> okay, whoever's editing that, take care of that right there. Oh, my goodness. So he says this. He says, children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists has come. Well, the Antichrist, we've, we've learned about what he is. But who are these little Antichrists? Well, in every culture, I believe, every part of our culture, there's been a man that everyone thought must have been the Antichrist, right? Who are these people? Do you, guys, do you know who these people are? Who's that on the left? Adolf Hitler. Who's that right next to him? Stalin. Who's right next to Stalin? Rasputin. Possibly responsible for taking down the whole Romanov dynasty and turning Russia a different way. And who's that last one? Bin Laden. Now, there people who lived in the culture of these people, I've heard, called all of these people the Antichrist. It must be the Antichrist because look how evil they are. But what's interesting about the Antichrist, again, he's not going to appear evil. Not on the surface. He's not going to look as evil as probably some of these men are. He's going to be craftier than that. He's going to look quite righteous and quite religious. He's going to be very charismatic. He's going to allure the eye. But it's possible that some of these men who have come have been here to pave the way for the true Antichrist. But listen to how he describes the little Antichrist, because he's going to describe these little Antichrists now. He says, they, the Antichrists, not the main Antichrist, but they went out from us. Do you notice that? If they went out from us, what does it tell us? That they once were in with us. Do you notice how it's not just going to be an evil dictator, someone that is very obvious to spot? It's going to be someone who's in our realm, within us, doing things with us, fellowshipping with us, eating with us, worshipping with us. But he says this about these antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. How do we know that? Because if they had been with us, of us, they would have continued with us. So it's someone that has come for a time and then someone that has left and they didn't stay with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Because that's the devil's game. Send them in. Reconnaissance. Close. Spy. Getting really near to the Christians and really comfortable with the Christians. One of the best antichrists that have come already is this character that we call Judas Iscariot. If you want to know what a real antichrist looks like, this is what it looks like. 
Someone who for a time, for many years, for possibly three full years, was in following Jesus, listening to Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, with the other disciples, seeing the miracles, hearing the teachings, being a part of these things even. And we know the story of, of Judas, sadly. Is he sold a soul, didn't he? He sold a soul to the devil. And he went out, and he did not stay with the other disciples. He did not continue with the other disciples. He went his own way. He went for money and for fame and for fortune, and he left. And he did damage to the name of Christ. Great damage. And he was one of these smaller antichrists that the devil had sent to sort of prepare the way so that we know, according to the Bible, according to 1 John, it is the last hour, and we know something else. That these people are getting very, very, very close to us. Now you've heard the term wolf in sheep's clothing. It comes right out of the Bible. This is what these antichrists are going to be. They're going to be right amongst us, next to us, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, giving hugs to us, talking with us about the scripture, fellowshipping with us, coming to meals with us. But they're going to have evil in their heart, evil intentions. And they're going to be sent. They're going to be sent by someone very evil to do great harm to the church. And they're going to be tough to recognize because a wolf who looks like a wolf, we're all going to run away from, correct? We're all going to keep at an arm's length. But a wolf who looks like a sheep, we might get very close to. And John wants us to know that, pay attention. Pay attention. He doesn't want us to be skeptical of all your brothers and sisters. That's not what he's saying, to go around like a witch hunt and say, I think he's one of them. I've noticed... The last two times they were at the potluck, they didn't, they didn't hug me quite as tight or their food was a little off. That's not what John is doing. Please don't do that, okay? That's not what we're called to do. But what he's telling us to do is pay attention because this is going to happen. And this is supposed to happen because the devil is preparing his battle right now to go against the church because he hates the church. He hates the church more than I think anything in this world because we are the ones who used to be his, who now serve and advance the name of God. He hates us. And he hates people specifically like me because I lead the way. People like me lead the way in this, in this army. And so he targets all of, his, all of his angst, all of his anger against us, and he sends these little antichrists amongst us to do great damage, to get very close to us. And John says, what you need to know is when these antichrists come, they won't stay long term. They'll be here for a time, then they'll vanish, and you won't see them anymore. And he says, I want you to know that that is an indicator that our time is brief, and that's an indicator that the true Antichrist is on his way. And you can kind of see this in our culture, and I don't know how accurate these, these numbers are, but if you look up who identifies as a Christian compared to who did several generations ago, in the silent generation, they said it was somewhere in the 80s. People that profess to be Christians. It's a pretty big number. The baby boomers that went down to below 80, somewhere around 76%. Generation X, that's kind of my generation, that and the millennials, we were identifying just above the 60%. And now millennials and those above us, you see the trend. Now again, I don't know how accurate that is because we cannot test the souls of those people. And I don't want us to get discouraged by that because that's the opposite of what John is going for. But it does make a mark, doesn't it? It does reveal to us that the devil is doing his best, his absolute best, to turn the tides, to turn the tables, to switch it around, to influence us away from Christ, away from the church. And he says, these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
Because if they had been of us, they would have continued. They would have remained. It doesn't mean there's a short snippet of time away and you know falling away just for a time and they come right back. He's saying these people, once they leave, they leave. Judas kind of leaving. They leave, they give their soul away to the devil, they, they follow that from that point on. I think every one of us in this room know people like that. I've had people in my ministry who were very, very close, buddy-buddy with me, spending so much time and investment with them, and then one day completely gave it up. Like they never, ever wanted it. Gone, and I never saw them again. And he says, this is, this is how it's going to look like. They went out that it might become plain to us that they all are not of us. And what is he telling us? He's telling us this. This is real. This warfare is no joke. It is real. Because let me ask you a question. Why would there be such warfare if it wasn't real? Why would Christians be opposed at all? Why not just call us crazy people and let us get on with our lives? Why oppose us? Because it's real. It's absolutely real. And we are a threat and a danger to the kingdom of darkness. And John wants us to know that this is real. And we are amongst this warfare, whether we want to be or not. If you name the name of Christ, you are a soldier for Jesus. And that should be a delight of our soul to say, I stand with him, he stands with me, let's advance the name of Christ. And to avoid it makes absolutely no sense at all because you must win or die. Those are the only options we have. We must advance the name of Christ or give up on it, abandon, turn around. The term is apostasy. Give it up, join the other team, and lose and lose royally. Those are the only options. And John wants us to know that we are being enforced, encouraged to go forward in this fight, to advance, to go on the offense because this is Real. Make no joke about it. And I want us to know that what's happening in our culture is not on accident. It's not coincidental. It's a revealing of what John is telling us today, that this is absolutely real. It's how it's supposed to look, but it's not the final chapter, is it? Because now we come to the antidote. Our time is brief. We've talked about Satan's preparation, and now we look at the antidote, which John brings up. He says, but you... True child of God. And you need to test your heart when you hear that. I don't know if you're a true child of God. I'm going to assume the best about all my brothers and sisters because that's what I'm called to do. I'm to assume the best. I'm to love you until I have evidence of the contrary. But I'm supposed to love everyone like they're a true child of God. But I believe when we come to this and we understand these things, we stop and we test our hearts and say, am I a true child of God? Have I really repented of my sins and turned to Jesus Christ? Have I put my faith in him? Have I trusted in him? Have I put all my dependency and weight of my salvation in the only one who can save me? Have you? Because if you have, you're a true child of God. And he says, you, child of God, have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Isn't that cool to know? That God's anointing is on all of his children? All of those children, God does not neglect one of his children, one of his sheep. I have eight children. Some of you know that. I try, is my best, and so does my wife, to give special attention to all of them. To not love three and neglect five or love six and neglect two, but to give all of my love to all of my children. God does that as well, and he does it really, really good. He gives his anointing, his special anointing to all of his children from the Holy One. 
In Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet Isaiah is giving a prophecy, of course. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 61. And think about who he's talking about. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Amen? The Lord's anointing is on this person. Special anointing. We come to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Fulfilled prophecy. Jesus' anointing came from God. And that's great to know. That's great to know because he's our captain. He's our pastor. He's our shepherd. He's the one that we follow. And he has this special anointing from God to do things that can only be described as from God himself. But guess what we get to do? Just like the little antichrists get to do for the main antichrists, we get to roll out the red carpet for the Christ to come back. For the Christ to come back to this earth, the second coming of Christ. We are little Christs, are we not? His hands and feet upon this world, and we have been called to do something really, really special. Pave the way, roll out the red carpet for his return. By advancing his name, advancing his holiness in this dark world. And we come to John 15, and Jesus himself is speaking, and he says this, When the Helper comes, and who's the Helper? The Holy Spirit. That's how we receive this anointing. We receive it from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us to do things that we otherwise could never do. God's Spirit comes within us, dwells within us. And he says, I will send him to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, and he will bear witness about me. His agenda is very clear. He's there for Jesus Christ's glory. And you, child of God, also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Do you see the privilege there? That not only is Christ anointed, but we as his followers are anointed from God to do what is a really profound experience for us. To pave the way for the second coming of, second coming of Christ. And I hope that's a special privilege for you because we live in a very dark world, but we have a very profound light. And that very profound light can overcome that very dark world. If we do it the way that God has told us. So Jesus has reminded us in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to pay back each one according to his deeds. I'm coming soon. Your time is brief. Your goal is very, very clearly stated. Advance the kingdom of God. How did Jesus tell us how to pray? My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our goal. And it's very clearly stated. And it's a privilege to advance the kingdom of God in a place that hates the kingdom of God. We get to line up on the side of Jesus Christ and turn the light on for the darkness. So the darkness can see the light. What does God's anointing teach us? Because it teaches us some very profound things and we need to kind of race through these things. But I need to mention what this anointing, this special anointing of the Holy Spirit, what does it teach children of God? Well, number one, it teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah. 
First and foremost, if you have the anointing of God, that's the number one thing you know absolutely certain and true is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not to come. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a godly man. He's not just a good moral teacher. He is the Christ that was prophesied ever since the beginning. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist, if you remember this, he's in the wilderness baptizing people. And it said in John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said this when he saw Jesus Christ approaching. There's the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not even unworthy to tie his sandals. But there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Christ. Make no mistake. In Acts 4.12, it says salvation is found in no one else. Do you notice that? What a line to draw. I'm not a Savior. I'm the Savior. There is none other. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. Do you believe that? That without Jesus we have nothing and with Jesus we have everything because our sins are forgiven. We've been stamped with God's anointing and we have eternal life waiting for us. But it's only found in the Son of God. Only Jesus. And if you have God's anointing, you know that more than anything in this world. Jesus is the Christ and there is no other. Number two, God's anointing teaches us that there are not truths, but truth. And the world wants to tell you the opposite. Postmodernism, right? You've got your truth. I got my truth. There's many paths to God, many paths to enlightenment. And let's all respect each other. But the problem is, is it's not true. It's not true. And the word of God has told us, and the anointing of God has taught us by experience, there is only one truth. It stems from and it flows to Jesus Christ. It comes from him and it goes to him. And if it does not come from him and if it does not flow to him, it's not truth at all. And it's probably from the evil one. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One. Not several, not dozens. One. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have God's anointing, you know that as clear as day. It is only through Jesus. It is only through the word of God. It is only by the Holy Spirit. It is only to advance the name and the will of God. I hope you understand that. And if you don't understand that, if that's foggy to you, if you don't understand that, you might not have God's anointing. But the great thing about that is that can change today. Today could be the day that you receive the anointing of God simply by putting your eyes upon Jesus and saying, I believe. I believe you are the Christ. I believe I need my sins forgiven. I want to be on your team, Jesus. And that anointing will come to you, just as it came to me and many in this room. Number three, the anointing of God teaches us that the only fear is outside of Jesus. What is the devil doing right now? Do you notice he has one tactic that he's using over and over and over again? Fear. Fear. What about diseases? What about the economy? 
What about this? What about that? What if this happens? What if this person gets here? What if these things don't take place? Fear, 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 fear. Because fear equals control, right? And he wants our control. So if he can scare us, he can get our control. And it's, it's a very simple but very effective process. But are we to be afraid of anything in this world? Anything if we're a child of God? The answer is no, except one thing. John says uh, in 1 John 5, a passage we're going to look at later on, he who has the Son has life, eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you notice that? There is something to fear outside of Jesus. Is there anything to fear inside of Jesus? No. Because you have God with you. You have God, the Son, the Father watching over you. And we have an illustration of this. If you rewind back to the Old Testament, this is a picture. I don't want to demean our Lord Jesus, but this is an illustration, a type, a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Outside is danger. Outside is death. Outside is destruction. Outside is darkness. Where's the only safety? In the Christ. In the ark. Safely tucked away. Only Jesus. Once you're in Christ, there is no fear. There is no true fear because the one almighty God is your father. The Lord, the king of kings, is your captain. The Holy Spirit is guiding you and empowering you to stand against the foes, the enemies of darkness. The only fear is outside of Christ. So once you have Christ, once you're walking with Christ, once you're fighting with Christ, all the fear is gone. And I'm so thankful for that. The last thing God's anointing teaches is that Christ-like love cannot be defeated. It's interesting, we've been talking about this before, is that the world wants to fight us, wants to bait us into its own fight, the same fight that they're fighting, with hatred and anger and shouting and evil. Come to the same battle. Fight the same way that we are. But that's not our fight. That's not how we defeat darkness. How do we defeat the darkness? With love. And the Lord could not have been more clear about that. The only thing that can defeat the darkness is the light. And we talked about this several lessons ago. We talked about that only love can defeat the darkness. How did Jesus defeat our darkness? He climbed up the Mount of Calvary with his own cross. With love. And he bled and he died and he suffered so that we could find the light of God. Darkness could not defeat darkness. Hatred could not defeat darkness. But love could. Every single time we follow Jesus in the pathway of love, darkness will be defeated. It's a promise from God himself. In every passage I told you there's going to be something that's for his glory and for our benefit and we find it here again quite, quite easily. God is glorified when his church beats the armies of darkness. Why is that? Think about that just for a moment. Why would God be glorified when the church beats Satan's army? I mean, look around this room. Do we look, look around this room. Do we look like people that can defeat, defeat Satan? Look at this. Look at me. Look at you. Look at us around this. Do we look like an army that can defeat the army of the devil? But guess what? We're going to. And how are we going to? By God's might, and by God's strength, and by God's wisdom. And one day he's going to be able to say to the devil for the rest of eternity, not only did I defeat you, I did it with the weakest people imaginable. The church. And we're going to be there going, yes, sir, that's me. I defeated the devil by God's grace and by God's strength. 
And God's going to be glorified for the rest of eternity. But we are also benefited when we stand with Jesus in eternal victory. Because right now it doesn't look like victory is taking place. It looks like defeat is taking place. And we're losing, we're losing ground. The darkness is gaining and advancing against the kingdom of God. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And the devil is luring us into a trap. But it's also possible and even probable that God himself is luring the devil into his own trap. By letting him think that he's winning. And when did he do it? 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. The devil said, aha, finally, I've won the battle. And three days later, up from the grave he arose. What's the point? The point is very simple. Time is brief. And while we have it, let us use it for God's glory and God's kingdom. That's the point of this. That's the point you woke up today. That's the reason you have life and breath in your lungs today. It's not to just experience things and to hike another mountain and explore some of the glory of the North Country. It's to advance the name and the glory of God's kingdom and God's name. And if you're not in that battle yet, get in that battle because time is brief. And one day you're going to wish you had joined that battle and joined that fight. Number two, the Antichrist is coming. It's, it's clearly stated in Scripture, and we can see it in our world. Antichrist is coming, but so is the second coming of Christ. And let us make absolutely sure that we're on the right team, and let us serve Jesus until the final buzzer, until the end. Because there's two teams. There's not three teams. There's not a dozen teams. There are two teams, light and darkness. And darkness is coming in a way that we possibly have never seen before, but so is light. And the light has been prophesied, will defeat the darkness. It won't be close. And at the last moment, there will be one team standing, and it will be those with Jesus. Are you with Jesus today? Because Jesus is going to win. And we are going to win. And the last question I have for you is, which team are you on? I had to ask that question as a 20-something young man. What team am I actually on? And that was the day that I signed up for Team Jesus. And I said, from this moment on, I will advance, I will serve, I will progress the name and the kingdom of God. Join the fight. Join the battle. And don't fight with your fists. Don't fight with your voice. Fight the way God told us to fight, with the love of Jesus Christ, because that's the only thing that can defeat the darkness. Do you believe Jesus will win? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have purchased us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light. We have nothing to praise about ourselves, nothing to boast in, simply the fact that Jesus scooped down with his loving arms and captured us from the darkness and brought us to the light where his love and affection and compassion and eternal life is waiting for us. We give all credit and glory to this lesson, to this truth, to Jesus today. And Father, I hope it's a delight and a privilege of us to stand with him and serve him and advance his name and kingdom because once we were sinners and now we are children of God. Father, stamp Crossroads Church, but not for our sake, but for yours, so that we can glorify your great name in a world and a time and a culture that desperately needs to see light. And we thank you and praise you for the privilege and opportunity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.